about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now we've been in this study of John's gospel for several weeks now, and we come this morning to verse verses 16 through 18. John the Baptist, as we have seen in this passage, which is all the way through verse 18 is the prologue. <clears throat> we have seen that uh, John the Baptist's witness was to testify of the pre-existence of Christ and emphasize the prominence of Jesus' ministry over his own ministry. John was eager to fulfill the work that the Father had given him as a forerunner by making a public Witness for Christ. John was given supernatural knowledge and insight as to who Jesus was, and he communicated that to everyone. John was not afraid to speak the truth about sin and the need of people to repent even up to the highest levels of people in the land. In fact, John called out Herod, the king, for his sinful life, and it cost him his life. We see all of that in Luke chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. Now, it would appear that the words we find here were words not of John the Baptist, but of John the Apostle in verse 16. Verse 15, as we looked at last week, is just simply a a parenthesis placed in between these two verses to give testimony as to what John is saying in verses 14 through 18. In fact, if you eliminate verse 15... From the text, it flows quite nicely. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. See, it flows. So verse 15 is there to draw attention to the truth of verse 14 and follow it into verse 16. So, John continues with that thought, the same thought of verse 14, grace and truth. He carries that through into verse 16 as reflected in the person and life of Christ. Now let's take it a phrase at a time, as we almost always do, and examine what the text is saying. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is, <clears throat> this is a, one of the most comforting and most humbling verses of John's gospel. 
The main intention of this verse is to show that believers in Christ have received, they've all received, from the infinite abundance of the grace and truth that have, that is found in Jesus Christ. Every single believer has received it. I want you to notice, first of all, the words, for from his fullness. The word for looks back to verse 14, so that you can pick up the thought of the fullness of Christ. And what is that fullness? He answers it in verse 14. And then the word from is an important word. For from, it's not simply a word that indicates uh the leftovers or that which is strode or spread sparsely from his life. It's the little Greek word ek, the preposition ek, and it means from within the midst of or from the out from the middle of something. It is the point at which emotion of any kind proceeds. The beginning. The, the, the place of starting, the midst. He is saying that this fullness is coming from within Christ. He is the point from which it originates. So what is this thing that is proceeding from Christ? He tells us what it is. It is His fullness his fullness now if we look back at verse 14 again we see the connection <clears throat> he is the son who is full of what grace and truth that is the fullness that john is speaking of here <clears throat> So, this grace and truth is there for a purpose. It is so that people will believe and find salvation in the work of Christ, who is grace and truth. And when they believe, they believe by His grace. And when they receive, they receive by His grace. So, what do they receive? They receive grace. This becomes more clear in just a few moments. Now, where does the grace come from? It comes from His fullness. So it's it's a circular type of thought here. That Christ is the one who has the grace. He gives it to those who believe. And He keeps giving it to them. And... He's constantly pouring it out. Constantly pouring it out. So you you have it at the beginning when you're saved and you have it throughout your life. The word fullness in the verse is the Greek word pleroma. It means to fill up, to make full, or to bring to a measure of abundance with the emphasis of completion. When I was a kid, my dad 
would ask me to pour him a cup of coffee. And as I pour a cup of coffee, I always leave it about a half an inch from the from the top of the cup because it's too hot to try to drink from a full cup. But my dad didn't think that way. He wanted it he wanted it all the way full, as full as I could get it without pouring it over. And he would keep he would do this with his finger. He'd keep going like that. Keep and I'd, I'd pour and pour, and then he'd say, okay. That's the idea. Fullness, complete, completely full. <clears throat> the completion is to be without any gaps or any interference. Again, John is countering the error of the Gnostics during his time who used this same word, Pleroma, to speak of angels and divine powers emanating from heaven, of which Jesus was only one of many in their thinking. They used the word to speak of the spiritual universe as the abode of God and and of the totality of divine powers and emanations that existed. They believed that those powers were divided equally among these spirits. Jesus was simply a link in that chain to to a better a better existence or a better future on the way to heaven. He was sort of a halfway house, if you will, in that link. <clears throat> this term is used 17 times in the New Testament. It speaks of the sum total or totality of fullness and the superabundance of it, particularly when we think of grace. Now, it's used several different ways to show fullness. It's used in 1 Corinthians 10.26 to show the totality of space. For the earth is the Lord's and the what? Fullness thereof. Well, if you go up in space, you find out very quickly that space is not full of objects. It's not totally full. In fact, there's a lot of emptiness in space. But it's talking about the totality of what is there. It is the Lord's. It's used in Romans 13 verse 10 to speak of the sum total of God's law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you could love perfectly, you would, you would be able to keep the law of God. The problem is you can't and I can't. It's used in Galatians 4.4 to show the fullness of of time or the sum total of time but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son so what he's saying is here that Jesus is filled he is the sum total of everything that God is he is the fullness of God in his person remember you remember Colossians 119 back few years back when we studied Colossians. <clears throat> For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This means that the Father was pleased that all his divine nature be found in Christ. This is the same idea of fullness that's used in other places in Scripture. 
For example, Mark 6, verse 43, Jesus fed the multitude and there were 12 baskets, what? Full of the leftovers. In Romans eleven twenty five, Paul uses this word to speak of the completion of salvation. And he uses it in Ephesians. To know the love of Christ to surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Until we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here, as John uses this word, it has a reference to this never-ending supply of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Never ends. He is full of grace and he will always be full of grace. We could not live as Christians in this evil fallen world without the infinite abundance of God's grace. Romans 5 verse 20 Paul says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or we could use the word superabounded. Grace superabounded. It's the only way you and I can have any hope of redemption is God's grace superabounding over our sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, that God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, may abound in every good work. Did you get that? That all sufficiency in all things at all times. Can you claim that promise? You certainly can. As a believer in Christ, you can claim the promise that God's grace will be sufficient for you no matter what you face, no matter when it happens, all the time, in every case. Notice the words, have all received speaks of those who have believed and placed their trust in Christ for salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Now, now understand it. When we're saved, the grace of God saves us. It's God's grace that saves us and gives us life. And then it's God's grace that supplies for us and keeps us going. Even in even into eternity. There will never be a time when we as believers, even after we are resurrected into a, a body that is incapable of dying and incapable of sinning, there will never be a time when the grace of God is not there present with us, keeping us in our eternal state. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than any of them, he says. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me that was working. So John wants us to understand that the grace of God in Christ is an ocean of abundance. 
that we draw from every day, every hour, even every minute from his supply, from him, him, from him, he himself. He is the fullness of that grace and we draw from that for every circumstance and every event in life. If the day ever came, which is an impossibility, but if the day ever came that we did not draw from the grace of God, we would be lost. Thank God that cannot happen. And so we lay aside ourselves and we submit fully and totally to Christ so that we are dominated by Him. This is the idea of fullness. That there's no more of me left, it's just Christ in me. The goal is that no part of our old man, that person we were before Christ, is left. He's he's not there anymore. I wish I could say that I'd come to that point, but uh, many times he rears his head. Christ, we wanted Christ to command it all. So here we are in our standing, in our standing before God, having been justified by his grace. All God sees is the new person that you are in Christ. That's all God sees. He doesn't see anything else. He does not see your sinful past. He does not see your sinful present. He does not even see your sinful future in your standing before Him. All He sees is you in Christ. That comes from His fullness. That's why Paul says in Romans 5 verse 2, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You and I will never be more saved. We will never be more forgiven. We will never be more accepted by God than we are right at this very moment in Christ. In our progressive life. The first is called justification, our standing. The second is called our our state, where we live, our progression in life, our walk with Christ. Here on earth, we are still in the process of being sanctified. We still are having to kill the flesh and submit to Christ. This is a daily Event, an hourly event, even a moment by moment event. And we're doing battle, spiritual battle, by the grace of God. And that's how we stand against the torrent of evil that not only is in the world, but that resides in this fleshly body. I don't know about you, but. My old flesh is not gone yet. I don't think any of yours is either because I see you and I know you. You're just like everyone else. And to live and walk with Christ is a work of grace. Same grace that saved you. 
is the same grace that keeps you. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and in the day of eternity. Grace. This was Paul's reappearing theme in Ephesians. We see it over and over. I want you to turn to Ephesians with me. I want you to see how this works as God views it. We have in Ephesians, he, uh, Paul relates the fullness of God in Christ as being the goal for which we now live. This is not just a reference to the individual, although it is certainly for individuals. But the thing I want you to understand is this is a reference to the church. To the church of Christ. This is how we are to view God working in our individual lives as we relate together before God. Now watch watch what he does. Chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Notice. Let's back up just a little bit and get some context, shall we? Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That what? Here's the purpose. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the purpose. That you might be filled with the fullness of God. Now turn over to chapter 4. verse. Look at verse 13. Back up to verse 11. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers... To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Here it is. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in chapter 3, verse 19, we have the fullness of God. In chapter 4, verse 13, we have the fullness of Christ. Now look at chapter 5. Verse 18, fall back to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We have God the Father, God the Son, And God the Spirit supplying our fullness that is found in Christ Jesus. We have the Trinity working on our behalf. Not only to save us, but to keep us and and guide us through our walk here in this life. This is why Christians can praise God when tragedy strikes or 
pain exists or loss occurs, it's because of the grace of God. When we are filled with the fullness of Christ through the Spirit, there will be no room left for anything else to control or to complete us. Just Christ. One last nugget of truth here in verse 16 that sort of puts the icing on the cake. We find those words, grace upon grace. We have all received grace upon grace. We find here that he uses the little Greek preposition, anti. And anti can mean upon or or on. Here it's probably better translated in the place of. We have all received grace in the place of grace. Now what does he mean by that? I remember standing in New York at uh, the Canadian border on the U.S. side, or on the Canadian side, actually, watching the falls go over Niagara. And if you've ever been there, and I'm sure many of you have, you, you can walk right up to where they go over, and you can stand right there and see it. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing to see that amount of water. I mean, it's deafening, the sound the spray that comes up, it's constant. There are places there where there's constant uh, mist of rain. And stood there and looked at that, at that Niagara Fall for, for a long time, just watching the water go over the edge. Now, if, if we stood there and watched that water go over the edge from the Hudson River coming in, And the water flowing, would it still be the same river that falls over the edge and goes down into the falls? Yes, it would. Still the same river. You can stand there for hours and hours and watch it. It's still the same river. Is it the same water? No. It's not the same water. The water is constantly being fed from the river for going over the falls and down the river beneath. You have a fresh supply of water at all times going over those falls. Same way with the Mississippi. If you stood there and watched it, you say it's the same river. But as the water flows, it's you're looking, it's not the same water. Constant supply, always flowing. This is the idea of the phrase grace upon grace or grace in the place of grace. What happens when God dispenses His amazing grace, it is used up for that moment. He gives it to you or initially to save you. And then He gives it to you for the rest of your life and all the way into eternity. Fresh grace. It's the same grace. It's just a new and fresh supply. And so it's grace upon or mounting up in the place of grace. When this grace that God gives me is gone, there is new grace right there for the next moment, for the next thing, for the next circumstance. 
It meets every need, carries us through every trial. Paul says, my grace, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, I won't, I won't boast in anything except weakness because that's where the grace comes. Also in Ephesians chapter 2, he speaks of it. His grace is exhaustless, undiminished, limitless, and never-ending, lavished upon undeserving worms like us. We were just at man camp, and we had a great man camp, by the way. And I want to thank Brother Dan Brown for hosting and all the guys who helped cook and make it a a great weekend. Uh, It was really good. We were plagued with, uh, what are they called, Dan, the army, army, army worms. They were everywhere. Well, the fish love them, so the kids were happy, and you could fish with them. I was sitting there looking, and one of them fell out of a tree on my, on my leg or something, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, that's, that's me. That's me, just a worm. God could have, God could have stepped on me and snuffed me out, but He didn't. He chose rather to lavish grace upon me, a worm. And you're one too, by the way. Don't get too uh, haughty or self-righteous about it. And listen, here's, here's, here's the ultimate end of it all. He's doing this for one thing, so that it will all be to the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians 1.6. All to the praise of His glorious grace. That's what you're going to hear in eternity. Praise to the glorious grace of God. You'll never, we will never get tired of saying it and singing it. It'll always be fresh. Notice the next phrase. I'm not going to have time to finish this whole thing, but I'll stop in about seven minutes here. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a further corroboration of verse 14, where John speaks about the law of God. He does this because the Jews held such stock in the law. And they believed that it was the law that was going to get them there. And so that's why they said, we are of Moses. Because Moses was the receiver of the law, Mount Sinai in Exodus 31. There was nothing wrong with the law. It reflected the glory and righteousness of God. It was perfect. That's the problem. It was too perfect for fallen mankind. And so, this is what Paul writes about in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Uh, That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known, he said, sin. I would not have known that I was a sinner. And It was the law of God that told me that. Do not do this, do not do that. And I did it, I sinned. 
So the law is holy, he says, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, verse 12, 7, 12, Romans. But the law of God is not an instrument of grace. It's an instrument of condemnation. It tells you just how much a sinner of a sinner you are. And condemns you with that terrible weight and gravity of sin. It shows sinners that they violated God's holy standard. The law did not have the ability to save anybody. It just had the ability to condemn people. Which it did. And over and over this is taught in Scripture. Acts 13, Romans 3, Romans 8, Galatians 2, Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all that is written in the book of the law to do them. You have to keep it all perfectly or you are lost. And since you were born in sin... And spoke lies from your mother's womb. You had no chance. Neither did I. The law simply is there to convict sinners and show them their inability to keep such high standards, such heavenly standards. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Not by works, not by doing good deeds, not by being religious. Observe how clearly the writer of Hebrews places Moses in in his proper place. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Get those words? He was God's servant. To testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ. Now he compares Christ. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Who do you think has more veracity? The servant or the son? And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And our boasting in our hope. Christ is the Son. He is the author of grace and truth. Moses was just simply a receptor of it through the law. One last phrase. Looks like I'm going to finish. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now, throughout this prologue, John has attested over and over to the truth about the deity of Christ, that he is God in the flesh. Here he ends with another statement that affirms this truth. He began the prologue with it. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and was God. And now he ends with this same exact thing, that Christ is God. For any man to stand in the presence of God would mean instant and sudden 
irreversible and irrevocable death. No one can live. Moses wanted to see God's face. God said to him, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. You remember the story. The scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ is the exact image and representation of God. God is invisible. And only the only way he can be seen is to be seen by people is through his son. That's why Jesus said to Nathaniel, if you've seen me, Nathaniel, you've seen the father. I don't have to show you the father. Just look at me. I and the Father are one. I was with the Father before the world began. And I'll be with Him after I'm resurrected. Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is the same thing that John said in verse 18. He says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has declared Him. He has made Him known. Who is that? That's Christ. The only God who is at the Father's side. Christ has seen the Father and He is the one who explains Him. In fact, that word, that word, uh, make Him known is the word where we get our English word exegesis. He's the one who explains Him. I'll end with this. John MacArthur, a quote from John MacArthur. The prologue presents an introductory synopsis of John's entire gospel. It introduces themes that will be explained throughout the rest of the book. There are none more important than this. Jesus, who existed in intimate fellowship with the Father from all eternity, as we see in verse 1, became flesh, as we see in verse 14, Brought the full expression of grace and truth to mankind, as we see in verse 17. And revealed God to man in verse 18. How did he do so? How he did so will be seen in the remainder of this gospel. Over and over again, we'll see this same pattern. As we go through this book. As we see Christ living and carrying out His ministry on earth with His disciples, we will see the God, the eternal God, who became a man, carrying out the Father's will, showing men the Father. I trust that over these weeks as we've studied the prologue that you will have thought over and over again about the One who came from heaven, took on human flesh, in the likeness of men, but without sin, who lived perfectly and died perfectly so that He might save you and me by His grace. 
as we continue to study this great gospel, I pray that God will change all of our hearts so that we will be less us and more of Him in the days to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You that we can come and worship and sing and pray and give and have the Lord's Supper and preach. We pray that Your Word will lodge in our hearts. That this grace that You have given us, that You saved us by, will continue to be our our steadfast means of walking and living in this sinful world and that we would become more and more like you as we look to you and as we see the great work that you have done and are doing in the lives of so many. These are evil days. They are days of error and deception and they are short. We look for your soon return. Even so come, Lord Jesus, we pray. And may you receive glory and honor. In, in your name we pray. Amen.